Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. Right. We are good to go, Shaw. We are good to go. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linford, and I'm here today with an incredibly inspiring woman. She's a powerhouse of a woman. So someone after my own heart. It's Shaw Wasmond. MBE, Sunday Times best-selling author and business mentor. Nice to see you, Shah. Lovely to be here, Jeanette. Yeah, it's taken us a while to get this organised uh, between our diaries, but we are here and I'm glad to be here. So, uh, yeah, excited to have a, a good conversation about business, about books, about scaling up your business, about all of it. Excellent, excellent. Well, yeah, the title of the podcast is Brave, Bold, Brilliant. So we've got to be, uh, you know, living and breathing all of those words, which you absolutely are. So it's going to be cool. Excellent. So, Shah, I think, um, why don't we kick off with a little bit about your journey, where life started for you, and then we're going to go from there, if that's all right. Yeah. So I think it's always important for people to have some context of the person they're listening to. So if you've got, you know, listeners who have never heard of me before, um, I think it's, let's just do a little whistle stop tour, because I think this is really important to have context of somebody's achievements and um, I, I also think it's really important to share the losses, not just the wins, because uh, one of my frustrations with today's society, especially in the online world, is that people portray what I call a photoshopped version of their life. So their pictures are photoshopped and filtered. Their lives are photoshopped and filtered. We only present a version of reality, like the best version. It's not even the reality. It's not just like the best reality. It's like the best version. And I think that's really dangerous. And I think it's really unhealthy because what happens is it sets everybody up for a fall because we're all led to believe that other people are having these incredibly wonderful, simple lives where everything goes right all the time. And they're making a gajillion by Monday. And so then we buy into this and then we think, well, if we don't tell those same stories, then people are going to look at us and they're going to think that, you know, we're not good enough. And so I, I really believe that when we have conversations like this, it's important to, to be honest, like not everything that I've done has always worked. Firstly, I come from a very humble background, single parent family, uh, grew up on a council estate. And before I was on a council estate, I actually spent two years living in a hostel for homeless families. I don't say it for anyone to feel sorry for me. I would never want anyone to feel sorry for me. But I think the context is important because when you've come from that kind of a background, um, I think that you realize you've got one or two choices. You're, you're either going to buy into what the system and the stool that has been set out for you, or you have to create your own version. And for me, I was just never satisfied with, you know, life had set out this stool. I didn't even have time to create one myself. And I just thought this is not my reality. I don't want this. So I have to be the person to take control of it and change that. And, and I share that because I'm not, it hasn't always been easy, far from it, um, but it is always possible. And so someone who's come from a background like me, I think it, it impacts um, it impacts everything that I do. It's interesting because 
I was on Nick James's podcast yesterday and we were talking about my podcast, which is called Building a Bigger Table. And he was asking me about the background to it. And he was saying how one of the things that he really respects me for is I'm always very outspoken about the things that matter to me. So equality and equity, whether that's your race, your gender, your socioeconomic background, these are things that are really important to me. And I really believe that because of where I've come from, I have a unique understanding of what it's like to come from nothing and have to work really hard to break through that kind of financial future that you were born into and create something different for future generations. So when we talk about business and we talk about wealth creation, I'm always focused on how do we, we create generational wealth? Because I'm, you know, I live in a beautiful multi-million pound house on a Royal Park in London. I have another beautiful multi-million pound house in Whitstable, or, you know, three minutes from the beach. And I'm not saying that to brag, I'm saying because I'm proud of what I've done and I'm grateful for it. But equally, that doesn't define me, right? That is, I, I have created that and I'm that's in my lifetime. But actually, what I'm really interested in is what can I pass down to my son and hopefully to his kids, maybe even his grandkids? How do I take what I've achieved so far and start to really get savvy with what I'm doing with my money? And it's not just about making money, it's about how do we learn how to make our money make money so that we're creating generational wealth? So these are the things that are important to me. I don't think it's, it's, it's no longer about like, you know, are you running a six-figure business or a seven-figure business? And all these kind of figures that are, that are put out there, I've run like five seven-figure businesses in a row. And truthfully, I know people who run what it would seem to be a six-figure business, but actually take home more money than other people who are running a seven-figure business. And so I think we need to bring some sanity back to these conversations and focus on the sanity metrics, not the vanity metrics. Like we as business owners and as, as leaders, if you're you know on a corporate career path, it's, it's got to be about what starts with us first. And it's, it's got to be about those sanity metrics. And, and not the vanity metrics for me. Yeah, and I love that, Shah, because keeping it real, and you, you're absolutely right, especially with social media and the image that people can put a, put across, it can be incredibly damaging, you know, and we all have our own little gremlins and our sort of insecurities, oh, and, and yeah. that can that can really feed that in a negative way. So I think being really open and honest and setting the context, as you said, is is absolutely critical. Let me take you back to kind of where, where life was, was tough when you were growing up. Did you have a bit of a light bulb moment where you went, this is not for me, I know there is more for me than this or was it sort of just a, a creepy creeping thing over time that you kind of came to that realization how, how did it play out I was eight years old I can I can remember exactly what happened I was eight years old and I, I kind of remember by the time I was 16 I've been to nine different schools so I don't know how many schools I've been to by the time I was eight but I was already fed up and I felt like we had I had no control over what was going on in, like like decisions were being made that impacted me and I had no control over them. And I know that that's a bit of a precocious thought process for an eight-year-old. Um, but my uncle had just come over and my uncle was probably the first one in our family to break out of poverty. And he had started working for Lloyd's, the underwriters in the city. And, you know, he, he, he was quite flamboyant, you know, newly found money. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Like, he was started talking about this apartment that he was going to buy in this, you know, block in the city. And I remember, I can't remember what class I was in, but I ended up drawing like an apartment block. And then I put my uncle, it's so funny. I put my 
uncle on like the 10th floor and I put his name by it. And then I took the top floor and that was my one. <laughs> and, then, and then from that point, you know, I, my parents had a very, very uh, disruptive relationship. My dad was a, a very heavy narcotics abuser, domestic violence. I mean, I lived through all of it. And I made a decision firstly that no one male or female was ever going to be able to control my life like I would always be in control of my own life I would always have a roof over my own head I would always have my own home that I and to this day I've got an awesome partner but the home I live in is my home now if we want to buy somewhere else together we can do that not a problem I'm happy to put my name on deeds with somebody else not a problem as long as I also have a house that is in my name by myself and and obviously that's deep rooted shit that comes from your childhood but you know the flip side of that i went through all of that as a kid i grew up on, in a hostel for homeless families and then a council state i bought my first property when i was 21 21 in islington in london at 21 with no help from anyone Maybe. so you know sometimes that real drive gives you just a really great start to life yeah, well, I mean, I genuinely believe that everyone has got greatness in them, but it's how do, how do you unlock it? You know, how do you actually, you know, push on through, surround yourself with the right people, have a vision, all of those good things play a part, don't they? And uh, the fact that you, and I know Islington very well, because I've spent many, 27 years in London. I used to live in Finsbury Park when I was younger, actually, which is down the road. So uh, well, you know, we I, went, I lived in Finsbury Park for a good three years whilst I was at uni. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I was there, I'm trying to think when I moved to London, 94. So I would have been, in, yeah, probably in Finsbury Park, about 95 to 98, yeah. 99. Yeah, I think I was probably there too. I was on Upper Tollington Road and Stroud Green Road. All yeah. Oh, my God. We were probably drinking in the same pubs at some point. Neighbors, neighbors. <laughs> you, the interesting thing, Jeanette, is that the things that would inspire me and encourage me to have that shift and that real drive could actually be the things that held someone else back. And vice versa. And so this is the, 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 the interesting, wonderful, scary thing about human beings is there is no one size fits all answer, right? So for me, being in such a traumatic situation was just an, I've never smoked. I've never drank alcohol. I've never taken any drugs. And that was because I grew up in an environment that was filled with abuse on all those levels. Whereas a lot of kids would grow up and naturally that's their normality so they are way more inclined to follow the footsteps of their parents than they are to rebel against them and i'm just grateful that whether it was genetics or whatever it was that happened that meant that i chose a different path yeah no incredible did you have um siblings as well Shah? yeah yeah so i've got a younger brother and we are totally utterly different like totally utterly different you know he he, he just wants to have a quiet life and just you have a normal life and you know live a normal lifestyle and doesn't want the what he would consider the stress of the ambitions that I have but to me having a normal lifestyle without those ambitions is stressful so again you can even have the same genes because we have the same parents and we had the same upbringing because they say nature or nurture I'm like well I don't know because we had the same nature and we had the same nurture and we're totally different 
Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I'm one of three and the, and I've got two older sisters and we are all very, very different. I was definitely the black sheep. I was the one that was off, you know, ready to explore the world at 18. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. And, and then just coming to the business side, Char, um, when you actually started your first business, talk about that because I think a lot of people will probably, you know, they look at you now, they see the success and, and thankfully you are very honest and open about kind of what's gone well and what's been challenging in your life. But nonetheless, I think people sometimes don't realise that you had to start. You had to start a business. Um, yeah. So of what what was that like? How, how what did you get into? How did it all play out? What was what was that first business right. experience? Well, like? I think I'm going to go back before that because if I just tell you about my first business, it's going to sound like I've just had everything easy. Because <laughs> when I tell you that story, it's almost like I've invented it. But you can Google it. It's on Wikipedia. <laughs> so before I tell you that story, I just want everyone to know that. I've worked since I was 13. Uh, I'm allergic to horses and I desperately wanted to learn how to horse ride. And my mom had absolutely no money for riding lessons. So I cleaned out stables at 13 every Saturday from eight in the morning until four in the afternoon. And I'd come home. <gasps> I couldn't breathe. I had welts. Like literally I had welts all over my face and over my neck. And my eyes were like this. I couldn't see properly. Uh, I was so determined that like, I, I you know, I give myself, I'm not perfect, but determination is like something I've got in, in, you know, droves. And I, I then as I got older, I, I worked in shops at 14 and 15, at 15 and 16, I started working with like a local, um, recruitment agency that, you know, puts temporary workers in. I cleaned hospital toilets. Um, like I've done everything. Like I, I never think that anything is too, I never think anything is beneath me to do. Um, to the extent I've been a vegetarian since I was 13. And when I went to uni, and I'm very proud, I went to the London School of Economics and did an economics degree. Um, I was on a full scholarship. I got a scholarship from, wait for it, McDonald's. Yes, I got a McDonald's international scholarship as a vegetarian. They didn't know I was a vegetarian and I didn't have the money to pay for uh, being at uni. So uh, I ended up going to work at their... Um, it was their Leicester Square branch, which at the time was the busiest branch, I think, in the whole entire world. It was like insane. And I was frying hamburgers as a vegetarian. I'm like, could it get any worse? Like, could it get any? So I just <laughs> want to say all of that to say that, you know, when you look at my story today, it seems, oh, look at this. It's so amazing. Well, actually, it was really hard, right? It was really, really hard. And then a few things happened, right? So I, um, when I was 16, I got a scholarship to go to the City of London School for Girls, which is one of the best private girls schools in, in the country, if not the best. And it changed my life. It completely transformed my life because I went from a, a, a state school that I hated to a school that I absolutely loved and adored. And even though I felt like a fish out of water because everybody was rich apart from me. And I was traveling an hour and a half to school and an hour and a half home. And I had a Saturday job. I was holding it all down. But the headmistress there, she was super posh. Oh my gosh, I'd never met anyone so posh in my whole life. She was a lady, <laughs> Lady France. And I mean, at first, my judge, I was judging her. I was like, oh God, like, I'm not going to like this woman because she's so posh. She's never going to understand me. And and really, that, that was just so false. She believed in me probably more than anyone other than my immediate family up until that point, definitely more than anyone in my education previously. And that belief in me, 
shifted something and I suddenly went from being a really naughty kid to being a really amazing focused disciplined supportive like just how you'd want your kids to be at school and I really wasn't before that I was the opposite and it, it goes to show what just somebody believing in you can do for you right and um and then uh, uh <laughs> whilst I was at school um, I made friends with with this girl whose dad was in advertising. So fast forward a few years later, and I got a phone call from her dad saying, you know, um, I'm working like on this freelance project and I've just put you forward for a job. Uh, can you come up to Malmesbury like next week with me? I'm like, yeah, sure. What's the job? And he says, well, it's... Um, it's to do PR. And I said, okay, who for? And he said, for, for somebody called James Dyson. I was like, who's that? Never heard of him. Anyway, long story short, I ended up going to the guy, to, to James's house in Bath, because he was operating out of his house at the time. And uh, he just won a $3 million lawsuit against Amway, which for anybody who knows James's story, that's how he sell Dyson, because he couldn't get funded. But he, he took Amway to court for infringing his patent. And that's how he got the funding. And to cut a long story short, he was looking at all these big agencies in London and he met me and we just, that was it. We just hit it off and he was just like, you're hired. And I spent the best part of probably five years working with James and Dyson. And, you know, when we go back to talk about my books, he wrote the foreword to my first book and um, that was it. So that's why I said, I have to give you some background because if I just tell you, oh, my first business, well, look, I just, I opened up this business and it was doing PR and our first client was Dyson. I mean, you know, imagine that. You think like what a twat. <laughs> no, honestly, that's brilliant. And that yeah, I was like you actually, you know, wiping tables in Debenhams, delivering the post at Kellogg's. And I did an economics degree as well. So we've got a lot of similarities, apart from my my northern accent versus your your uh, southern accent. But um, yeah, no, that's a brilliant story. And when you were with Dyson, because with James Dyson in particular, working so closely, I mean, you're talking about innovation at its at its leading cutting edge, aren't yeah. you? So what what did was that environment particularly great for you from a creative perspective as well, just being surrounded by that innovation? Uh, to, to be honest, I don't think it was even about the innovation. It was about the resilience. So, yes, he's an amazing designer. Yes, the innovation is incredible. And, yes, those are the things that will probably be his legacy. But for me, it was the resilience. So for people to truly understand that here stood a man who had had his ideas stolen from him, had had the balls to put his own house on the line with lawyers because that was the only way he could afford to take Amway to court, took Amway to court in America after being told that he had like literally a 10% chance of winning, won the case. When he came back, he needed more funding. Everyone turned him down. Hoover turned him down. Mila turned him down. Electrox turned him down. They all told me it was a stupid idea and it would never work. He then took the idea and he went to venture capital firms. He went to private equity firms. Everyone turned him down. Like every single person said no. The kind of resilience and self-belief that it requires when everyone's saying no to you, not just your competitors, which you might write off, not just the VCs, which you might say, well, they just don't get it, but everyone. That resilience is phenomenal. But because he was so resilient, he now, you know, he, he has like a billion pound company, pound, a billion pound company. 
Yeah, no, phenomenal. God, that that's incredible. And as you say, you know, people would just sort of look at Dyson and think it's all easy and won't realise necessarily the backstory. And I think we're so judgmental of, of what, yeah. you know, we only ever see the success or we only ever see the failure. But we all know that for every success, there's been a gazillion failures along the way. And for every failure, there's probably been loads of successes on the route to that. Yeah. But, but we have to be honest in sharing them. Otherwise, we give people a false premise. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about the books then, Shaw, because I know that's something you're really proud and passionate about. I mean, to be a Sunday Times bestseller, that's that's pretty cool. That's a nice thing yeah. to have on your CV. Well done. That's impressive. Um, yeah. So talk about the books and kind of why they're so important, who they're helping, really. And yeah, all of that. Yeah, stuff. So I think um, I've, I've had four number ones in a row. We broke all the records uh, at WH Smith with our first book. We had uh, the number one bestselling business book for over a year, over a year. Like literally, it was insane. Uh, and then out of those four books, one of those is also a Sunday Times bestseller. I'm just finishing off the 10th anniversary edition of my first book. So I'm excited about that. Really, my books are for people who it, it, it's like um, Waterstones call it smart thinking. So it's a, the cross section between business development and personal development. Because truthfully, I don't think you can have business development or career development without personal development. And I think they very much tie in with the work that I do because, you know, we were talking before we started. And, and I'm really focused on the mentoring with the entrepreneurs and the individuals who are ambitious and who want to really scale up and and so very much the premise of my books is is aimed at those people and yeah I'm really proud because do you know what coming from where I've come from to to even think that I could get a book out there let alone four and uh, yeah we've got a good friend in in common Mr Rob Moore and we're always competitive with each other on who sold more books and he's definitely had more books out there but in terms of sales I reckon we're much closer in numbers <laughs> It's always good to give Rob a run for his money, for sure. And he still needs to get a Sunday Times bestseller. I'm, I'm really glad you pointed that out, you know, because it's important, the detail here. The detail Rob, is very important. <laughs> if you're listening, I will interview you next time when you get your Sunday Times bestseller. There's a motivation for him. <laughs> All good stuff. So so with the books then, did you, again, was that very intentional, Shah? Was it that you sort of said, I want to write a book, I'm going to start with the first one. How do you go about that process? Because someone might be sitting here listening or watching on YouTube thinking, I'd love to write a book, but where the hell do I start you know what would you recommend well, if you want to write a book i recommend you go to my website shah shaa.com that's literally all you need to do we've got so many resources to help people figure out how to get their book written we've got templates and we've got my book proposal template and we've got quizzes to help you figure out what's the right publishing path for you because some people actually be far better off going down what I call a hybrid publishing route where somebody takes care of all of the formatting and the cover design for you, but you own the book. So, so you don't have to wait for a publisher to say yes or no to you. Honestly, 95% of people should go down that path and probably 5% of people should go to a traditional publisher. You know, there are pros and cons for, for both sides. So if you've got a book in you, honestly, just head over to my site and, and check out the resources we've got there because I am all about encouraging people to, I, I think that books are legacies that we leave behind us as well. And I don't think it matters whether you're in the corporate world or the entrepreneurial world. I, I think we've all got a book in us and it's actually far, far, far easier to get a book written 
than you think it is. So for most people, they think you've got to sit there and start with a blank screen. And actually what I encourage most people to do is actually think about what's the content that you've already got. Maybe you've delivered a workshop or a presentation on this topic, or maybe you've got a podcast on this topic. Start with that, get it transcribed, get somebody to help you start editing that into the framework or the skeleton of a book. And before you know it, you can go from start to being ready to get published within 12 weeks. Everyone can, not a person listening to this who wouldn't be able to do that. And for me, books are just, you know, it's a great way to raise your profile and it's also a great way to raise your prices because it positions you as the absolute expert in your field. But it's also about leaving a legacy, right? My books will always be there. They're still on, you know, my first book is still on sale today, 10 years later, which, you know, no course I've created is still on sale 10 years later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the whole process must be really cathartic. It actually yeah. all getting, you know, getting it out of your head onto paper and just sort of shaping yeah. it up. It's almost like, I suppose, you're kind of creating a baby kind of, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Absolutely. Do you ever, um, have you ever struggled with, you know, the classic writer's block or is that oh just not God, a thing? Oh my God, all the time. All the time. But again, you know, I have an exercise that helps people with that, which is mapping out their book and, I just used post-it notes all over the wall and I have a, a really specific system that I use so that you never get to that point where you're like, what do I write next? Because you chunk it all down and you're looking at all these post-it notes on your wall. That part's really easy. Everyone could do that. But when you get writer's block, you look at these post-it notes and you go, I don't know what I'm going to write. I'm going to pick that one. And they've all got like a, a topic or a title on it. So if you don't know what to do, you take the topic, you take the title, you go, right, I'm going to write about this. Because then when you've done that, you can put that back and go, okay, now I can kind of, it's all about, imagine like a little patchwork. You're saying all these bits together. Mm, yeah, like almost the component parts. And Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. brilliant. How much of your personality is in your books, do you think, versus the sort of you know, more business side of things and just the theory? A no, a lot, a lot. Well, I mean, you only need to look at the titles. So the first title is called Stop Talking, Start Doing, A Kick in the Pants in Six Parts. Uh, the next one, uh, Do Less, Get More. And then the one after that was another variation, the Stop Talking, Start Doing action book. And then my last one, How to Fix Your Shit. <laughs> it's all about the action, fixing your shit and just all get about, going. Yeah. <laughs> all of, yeah, so it's got tons of my personality. In it. And, you know, a lot of people said to me, well, your books are really short, short. Like they're typically 25 to 35,000 words. And I'm like, people are time poor. I want to create inhalable content that people can pick my book up and they can read it on a train journey or they can read it on a European plane journey. And the thing is, if you write a book and people don't read it, it's got no benefit to anyone. So why don't we write books that people actually read and consume and benefit from? Yeah, yeah, totally. And can we talk about social media, Shah? Because obviously yes, we, we, we we kicked off saying about, you know, sometimes the negative side of social media, but equally, like anything, you know, you can do a lot of good as well with social media, both in terms of business or giving back or, you know, inspiring people. So social media, how important has that been for you with your businesses, with your profile and and any tips really around the best way for people to leverage social media? Okay, so I'm going to take this like a Pandora's box. And I'm going to tell you that I'm an early adopter and I've been on social media for what feels like a trillion years. And I'll also be honest, I'm really bored of it. 
And I think this is a conversation more of us need to have. And I think that post-pandemic, even more of us feel like this. I think post-pandemic, where we've been forced to be online and on call 24-7, I actually think it's going to be a backlash on a demographic, probably 30 plus. Now, younger than 30, they'll just find new platforms and new things, and there'll be another one next year. And But a 30 plus, I think it's going to be a backlash. And I think we, we could potentially start to see the usage of social media drop substantially in that demographic. So we have to think to ourselves, okay, so what's going to replace it? Interestingly, I think podcasts are replacing it. Mm. So for me, I love listening to podcasts because I can walk. I can. That's why I like Clubhouse because it's audio. I'm really just the constant Facebook posting and Instagram, but I'm not going to lie. I've made multiple seven figures from leveraging social media. I'm grateful for it. But just because I'm grateful for it doesn't mean I need to tie myself to it for the rest of my life. And I feel like I've come to a point where I will use social media for my business, but I'm really not interested in being on social media all the time anymore. And I used to love it. Like I used to love it. I feel the interesting how, how you feel, but I feel post lockdown, post pandemic, I'm craving, I'm craving travel. I'm craving retreats. I'm craving in-person events. I'm craving small, intimate conversation. I'm craving in-depth conversation. You know, I don't really do a lot of one-to-one work and I'm actually craving doing not a lot, but I'm actually craving doing one-to-one work where I can actually go deep, not broad and shallow. I'm craving sitting in a coffee shop and having a chat with my friends. I'm craving, it feels a bit like old school and I kind of think, wow, actually, I'm all right with that. Don't know how you feel, but that's definitely how I've been feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's it's a really interesting sort of dilemma, isn't it? Because, you know, social media has is powerful and you've got this, you know, especially from a business point of view as well. But equally, it's how do you want to spend your time? What do you what what sort of nourishes your soul in a way? Um, and, and I it's interesting because I was on a clubhouse room this morning. I do a travel clubhouse room every Tuesday morning. And actually now, you know, the travel industry has been absolutely decimated through through COVID and uh you know, there's a big trade fair that happens every year in London called World Travel Market. It's like the place to be if you're in travel and tourism. It's where you get your business done, deals done, everything. And it hasn't ran for, you know, last year. So this is the first year and everyone is so excited to get back in the room, meet people, do a deal where you look each other in the eye and you shake hands on a deal um, or whatever it might be. And and I agree with you. Yeah. And I've got to say that I really believe you can build a business however you want to build a business. Could I build a seven-figure business without social media? Yeah, I could. 100% I could. It's not even that difficult. I would have to change the structure of what I was doing probably. So instead of reaching lots of people at this price point, I might have to change my business model. I might have to go into corporates and sell them training programs on you know, how they bring more equity to their boardroom, how they bring more equity into their senior management and how they bring more of an entrepreneurial spirit. But I could sell 10 packages of 100 grand. Could I do that? Of course I could. Yeah, absolutely. And I would never have to be on any form of social media, not even LinkedIn. I could be off everything. I could just use my own network to do that. So I'm just saying, don't be bombarded into believing that you have to do anything. 
And I tend to find that when you're forced to do things, you won't have consistency. And consistency is the absolute key. Consistency is where you get results, whether it's in your fitness, in your finances, or in your business, right? Consistency is key. Yeah, 100%. And actually, I mean, I've um, spent most of the morning on the phone this morning, like, my God, having a proper conversation with people, like old school. And you know what? It was brilliant. <laughs> and I walked Can away I tell you what I've done recently? I've, I've moved all of my Zoom calls from Zoom to my mobile, and I just go for a walk in the park and do my Zoom calls. It's, yeah. and not Zoom calls, but I do phone calls instead of Zoom calls because I'm Zoomed out. Yeah. I'm like, you know? It's, yeah. it's, I just feel that we've... The last two years is probably equated to eight years online. Mm. Yeah. So we're now feeling how we would feel eight years from now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you talked, um, you just touched briefly on diversity and inclusion, and that's something that I'm really passionate about. I mean, in the corporate world that I was in, um, I was nearly always the only woman in the boardroom with a P&L, um, by the way, you know. So I, 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 it never held me back. But I certainly felt it through my career at different points and stuff. So I know you're passionate about yeah. diversity, inclusion, whether it's gender, racial equality, LBGT, LBGTQ, <laughs> I can say it. Um, so how, how, how does that play out on a sort of day-to-day basis for you then on the DNI stuff? Well, for me, it's baked into who I am and everything that I do. So that should be represented in my whole entire company. It should be represented by who's on my team. Uh, both as contractors and employees. It should be represented by who I choose to be my coaches for my programs. It should be represented on how I do my marketing so that that everyone feels included in my marketing. So we don't just tick a particular demographic, but, you know, you can't be what you can't see. So my view is that, you know, I'm going to make sure that everyone feels like this is a safe space for them. And the only people that is not a safe space for are probably people who vote for Donald Trump. And then, you know, go and work with someone else. And I'm fine with that. Um, I'm very, very clear about my political views. I'm very clear about my views on equity and gender and, and race. And I'm very clear about, you know, why I do what I do, why it's important to me. But I can also be respectful of people who have different opinions to me. Where I find it harder is when their opinions cross my ethics or my moral compass. Now, you could vote conservative and I could vote Labour, which I do, but I would understand why some people would vote conservative because, you know, I make it a choice to vote Labour because of where I've come from. And I know a lot of people have criticised me saying, well, how can you be an ambitious business leader and vote Labour? And I'm like, because I'm prepared to pay more tax if I need to in order to help those who, because without the welfare state, I would have had a far harder life. So I'm not going to forget my roots. And I'm not going to argue with you that I would be better off tax-wise under a different, you know, under the Conservatives than I would under Labour. But I accept that's a price for me to pay for what's important to me. So I can have that conversation respectfully. And I can also understand why people would vote Conservative. What I wouldn't be able to understand is why anybody would vote, you know, for the BNP or why, you know, why would anyone vote for Farage? Like, oh my God, if somebody voted for Farage, then we'd, we'd, I just would not be working with them. But if you vote for, you know, if you vote for the Tories, I'm perfect. That's, that's what we can all get on. But it's when my moral and ethical compass is crossed, then I have a problem. 
Yeah, I'm with you. And also, I think you get to a certain point in your career, your life, where you kind of, you know, you're comfortable in your own shoes, you know your stuff, you actually have a position to choose who you spend time with, who you work with. And actually to say no is is a really I've refunded people. I've refunded people before. Like when it was the Trump election, I can't remember how this came up, but it came up about running your own business. What was it? I was at a big event. It was my event. And we had like 300 people in the audience. And somebody asked me a question. Why do you, you know, why did you choose to run your business? Because I wanted to do things my way. And I wanted to be able to talk about the things that are important to me. And they said, well, what does that look like? And I said, well, for example, you know, I don't really, uh, I don't, I don't, because it was like in the middle of the, the American elections. I was like, well, I would never want to support or help anyone who voted for Trump. And um, and they said, well, that's easy for you to say, but what would that look like? And I said, well, hold on a second. I said, okay, so because we just sold a two-day workshop. I said, hands up anyone in this room who bought my two-day workshop. And lots of people put their hands up. And I said, okay, everyone else, uh, put your hands down. But if, if you would vote for Trump, keep your hand up. One guy kept his hand up. And I said, respectfully, I'm happy to give you a full refund. Mossy, can you go see the guy? And I said... I don't want to help someone who has those views. Now, some people might be listening to this thinking like, what an arrogant twat I am. Like, what right do I have? It's my business, mate. It's my business. And I'm happy to support a conservative or a Republican, but I'm not happy to support somebody who has a different moral compass to mine. And that's my choice. And I've worked hard to have that choice, right? And I would be, I I think, you, you know, people don't know what you stand for you're easily forgotten because if you don't stand for anything, you fall for nothing. And, and I just think that's really true. And I think we can, you know, 95% of the time we can have respectful dialogue and have different opinions and hopefully we can learn from each other. I don't think I have all the answers and I definitely think I can have conversations with people who have completely different perspectives to mine and I can learn from them. But it's when my moral and my ethical compass across, you can have a refund. Yeah, no, what a brilliant story. And actually, you know, I think you're totally right. It's having the confidence as well to be able to say no. And I think a lot of people say yes too much because they feel they should or that, you know, and all of these reasons, what will people say? And to actually be out there and be bold and brave and say, no, actually, this isn't this isn't the way I want to work. This isn't who I yeah. want to spend time with. So I know I think that's really encouraging, actually. Be be true to your own values, what's important. Yeah. And um, and because that does run through, you know, business, personal everything. life, everything. You just sleep better at night being true to yourself. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? Actually, if you're trying to be someone else, then one, it's bloody exhausting. Two, you will get found out eventually because people smell bullshit, don't they? <laughs> of course. And actually, it's interesting because on the floor right here, I have a biography. Is that my adopted dad? This guy's name, he's actually Sir Richard Needham. And this guy was the chairman of Dyson when I first started working at Dyson. And he kind of took me under his wing and adopted me. But he used to be um, the minister for Ireland for the Conservative government. He's as conservative as you can possibly get in his DNA. He knows that I've always voted Labour and I always will. But I still love him to bits and I can still learn from him and vice versa. So I just think it's because his moral compass, because his ethical compass is in the right place. Yeah, 100%. Now I'm with you. So, Char, let's talk about the, the businesses you've got now, because you've got loads. <laughs> so, I have loads, but I have a few. You've got a few. You've got more than one. I've got more than one. <laughs> there you go. Tell me about the businesses and, and what, you know, because there's quite a lot in there, I think, that's worth sharing. 
Yeah, so I think that, you know, the main business is a training business and the training business really focuses on two things. We focus on mentoring entrepreneurs and business leaders who want to scale up. And then the second part of that business is we help, unsurprisingly, entrepreneurs and business leaders who want to uh, who want to get their book written, published, and actually working for them. So we get really focused on working with people on how do they scale their business. We're not for startups. That's not my area of expertise. My area of expertise is how do you scale up to a seven, multiple seven-figure business? How do you build that well-known brand in your industry? And part of building that well-known brand in your industry for me has always been you write a book and, and really just helping business leaders and entrepreneurs make that process much easier and more fun to do. I mean, that's really the cornerstone of everything we do. We do it in different ways. You know, as I said, I don't really do very much one-to-one work, but I have a uh, I, I have a super tight mastermind group that's been running for the last couple of years now. Um, we run one group program a year, like a, a main group program just for entrepreneurs and business leaders who want to scale. And, and the book program runs kind of, all year round in the background, because for me, it's been a pillar of growing my brand and growing my business. So it's something that we kind of do all the time. So that's pretty much my main gig, um, my main business. Then my little side businesses are writing my books, because actually it's almost a business in itself. Um, And I'm one of the very lucky ones who get significant book deals. but, But obviously that's based on your track record of selling books. And then I have a much smaller property business, but I do love my property. And uh, my jewel in the crown is I've got a stunning house in uh, Whitstable in Kent that I kind of decided during lockdown to put it under a major kind of like grand design renovation. And uh, we now rent that out. And it's, it's just, I find it fascinating when you look at the different business models because that business nets me couldn't let me up to 10k a month and we're consistently rented out obviously you know more in the high season slightly less in the lower season but it's consistently rented out week on week and it's very little maintenance like I don't really have a bunch of customers I have to serve I just have my cleaners and my builder and my maintenance guy and the guy who's booking it and when I look at it I'm like and I have no mortgage and I'm like wow so out of that 10k I'm probably each month out of that 10k I'm probably walking away with 8K profit. Hi, hi, that's a nice business. Oh, I could just sit back and just not do anything, right? I mean, and yet the true entrepreneur can't do that. Like I'd be bored, you know? (laughs) So I do think, oh, why don't I just get, because I've got an eye for it. Why don't I just do three or four houses in Whitstable and just be known as the person to rent houses from in Whitstable and then could do 40K a month and, in passive income, but it's way more passive income than running group programs with people because humans want into, you know, they want connection, they want conversations, properties don't. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And in, in fact, it's interesting because we've uh, we've got our property portfolio as well, but we've just, uh, we're expanding into luxury holiday homes as well, but down in South Wales. So we've got a deal going through at the moment, which we're really excited about, you know. So um, yeah, you're right, passive income, but also you get the equity growth as well over time, which is nice. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think- I think, I think it's a big market for luxury holiday homes in the UK. 
I, I genuinely agree. I mean, I, I spent most of my life in the travel industry running big global travel businesses. So I guess for us, with our properties, it's interesting because in the world of property, people talk about serviced accommodation and they see it as a property strategy. I look at it and go, that's a travel business. That's a holiday business, a domestic yeah. holiday business. So for us, um, it's quite nice to bring the two worlds together, actually, yeah, and, yeah, and do that. that. So, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we shall have another another follow-up conversation yeah. on this, Shah, once you have expanded the portfolio and uh, we can uh, we can compare design ideas and stuff. So, no, it's all good. I do love it. And I love being hands-on with the whole, like, building design process. And I, because I feel like it's like a book. It's, um, it's a creative process, right? Hundred percent, yeah, yeah, and you can leave your mark. You leave your personality there as well, yeah. so that's that's great. And and uh, Shah, the podcast. So the podcast, building a bigger table, that for me screams um, diversity and inclusion as well, and and making, I guess, financial freedom choice available to more people. Build a bigger table, diverse, yeah. etc. Um, talk about the podcast and, and sort of the type of guests you're having on and so that people can, you know, check that out as well. Cause I think yeah. that's really inspiring. Yeah, definitely. So it's very much about business and entrepreneurship, but within that framework, I look through the lens of how can we take this episode or this lesson in this episode and help create financial empowerment for everyone. So some of the episodes may have a gender focus in terms of speaking with women about how, how do we change the dynamics in the ways that, why is it that only 2% of seven figure businesses are women? You know, that's a topic of conversation. But equally, you know, I'm very fortunate. Uh, I've got some very good friends in the industry. So I've had people like uh, Ryan Levesque, Stu McLaren, Amy Porterfield, all come onto my podcast. And yeah, we do talk about business, but we talk about all the other things. And in fact, I really encourage you to listen to um, the first episode of this new season for the podcast. And it is with Casey Zeman, who is the founder of Easy Webinar. And the entrepreneurs listening to this, I'm sure if you haven't used Easy Webinar, you've heard of it. And if you haven't used it, you actually really should. I'm not on commission. It's just a bloody great platform. But if you listen to the episode, it is, yeah, it's about how do we create passive income in our business, but it's also about how do you, the more income you create, the more impact you can have. And Casey adopted two boys from um, Haiti, and he talks about the challenges that he's faced as, you know, as a white parent with, with black children and being really honest about how there are times when he doesn't know how to handle something and he doesn't always have someone to call on to ask and how he's he's scared of not doing the right thing but trying to be brave enough to push forward anyway and talks about all the things he does in the background that people don't see like how often he takes the kids back to height because he knows how important it is that he can't maintain those roots where they live so he has to their lives have to change. Their lives have to, to change to incorporate, not just like a, you know, a weekend visit once a year, but they have to bake in that this is part of your DNA. And you, as a child that I've chosen to adopt, have every right by your birthright to understand who you are, where you came from, so that you grow up feeling whole and confident. And we had some really, like, challenging conversations not challenging between us but about things that people are often scared to talk about and it was just it was just a brilliant brilliant conversation and um yeah i just think he's amazing i think he's really amazing 
Yeah, and I mean, that's the joy, isn't it, of podcasts? I mean, I, you know, I'm really appreciative of you being here and we're having a, a conversation that's going to help so many people listening, thinking, bloody hell, if Shark can do that, well, then so can I. You know? Absolutely. And I want people to hold on to that because I don't put myself out there to be anything super out of the ordinary other than I'm probably more resilient than most, right? I don't think I'm cleverer than most. I don't think I'm, you know, I don't have any magic sauce. I don't have a unicorn outside and I'm not sat here on a, rainbow magic carpet i'm just normal with an extra dose of resilience yeah oh well, well it's a combination that's definitely working for you isn't it <laughs> so let's talk very briefly about the mbe well i say how can you talk briefly about an mbe but there we are you are you have an mbe shah wasman mbe how did that happen well um Apparently, you never really find out how it happens, but meetings are held behind closed doors. You can't put yourself forward for it. And I think, in fact, if you do put yourself forward for it, you're probably automatically dismissed. So I have my suspicions on who put me forward, but I don't know, and they won't tell me. And then what happens is a group of people who also have MBEs, OBs, CBs, all get together and they have to vote. So it goes through this whole vetting process. And um, it was an incredible moment. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm not one of these people who are like, I don't believe in the monarchy. You can have that back. I don't need it. I'm like, this is great. But primarily it was great because I got to take my grandma, who I'm so close to. She's 96. And I got to take her with me to the palace. And that was worth everything. Like, you know, that was worth everything to me. Wow. And, and, and it, I mean, the whole regalia, the occasion, the pomp, the circumstance, it must have been incredible. What did, yeah. you, what did your grand say when you told her that what was going to happen? Well, I think she was just so shocked. She couldn't imagine it. She grew up on a council estate, never left the country till she was 60. She's just had a whole entirely different life to me. And But it, it started for, so one of my really good friends is a guy called Avsal Khan, K-A-H-N, and for anyone who's into their cars, you will know Khan Design. So he is the designer behind the Khan Range Rover, but all the other Khan cars. And he's phenomenal. He, we've been friends for years and years and years. So when he found out, he drove his Silver Phantom from Bradford to pick up my nan in Whitstable and then drove to my house in London to pick me up and then drove us to Buckingham Palace. So it was extraordinary. Oh, what a sweetheart. Oh, oh he's word. amazing. This is what I said. You know, business, you, you connect with all kinds of, like, great, wonderful people. I just yeah. feel very blessed. Oh, wonderful. What's your nan's name, Shaw? Olive. Olive. What a great name. Oh, Olive. Actually, do you know what? What do you think is my most listened to podcast? Did you interview your nan? I interviewed my nan. Yes. It's my most listened to podcast. She's phenomenal. Well, it's funny you should say that because my episode that was out this Monday was with my mum, um, Doreen. Doreen is 84 and we talked about how life used to be and, you know, because we are all so spoiled in today's day and age, aren't we? And uh, it's definitely, definitely my proudest, proudest episode. So I, I can totally see where you're coming from with lovely Olive. I'm going to check that out now. It's um, a great, great, great episode because she shares, you know, how much life has changed in her 96 years. But the other thing is it, I think it gives so much hope to people that if she can, she's a hundred percent with it at 96. Now she's got a stand of stair lift. Now she hates it. Um, she, you know, we all go and help her around the house. She hates that too, but she is as witty and as smart and sharp as she ever was. She's, she's very lucky. Yeah. I can see your face light up. So when you're oh, talking about her, she's just oh. she's phenomenal. And when you listen to the podcast, the stories that she tells and, you know, the jokes that she makes, she's just, she's hilarious. Oh, brilliant. I love that. But yeah. When, but... when I wrote my first book, 
she actually asked me if I'd written a sex book. I was like, where did that even come from? Like, why would you think? Like, where did, what, where, where did I give you that impression? Was she disappointed when you said, no, it's just, it's a business book? I said, yeah, it's about, oh, she went, oh, okay then. <laughs> I love it. Maybe that has to be the next book then, just to please Olive. Maybe she should write a sex book. That could be interesting. It could be. I think she, she was very upset. She, we, I, I was thinking I was going to try to get, you know, Captain Tom to see her but it never happened. Oh, what a shame. What a shame. But Olive is here and she's doing fantastically well. She that is. incredible. Brilliant. So, Shaw, can you think of the thing that you're most proud of? Oh, what am I most proud of? Never giving up. Yeah. I think I'm probably, that's what I'm most proud of, never giving up. And I, I think it, the other thing is that if you put, you know, obviously everybody says they're, they're kids and that'd be an automatic, you know, That'd be the automatic thing we'd all say naturally. But if you put that to one side, I think what I would say, what I'm proudest of most is that what I really want my legacy to be is, yes, I want the financial, on a, on a, on a big level, the impact I want to make is financial empowerment for as many of us who didn't have it, who weren't born into it as possible. But really, I will feel that I've led a good life when, my my tombstone says she was the best 3 a.m. friend anyone could ever have. Like, I think I am just as loyal as they come. Like, if, if my friends, I've had my friendships for 20-odd years, and, you know, I'm very proud of my friendships. I'm very proud of my relationships. I'm very proud that I know that all of my friends, including Rob, would know that if they had one phone call to make, if they made it to me, not only would I answer it at 3am, but I'd drop everything and do whatever it took to get them out of whatever situation they were in. And I think that's, I think we, we value things sometimes in the wrong ways. It's not about, it's not, you know, it's, it's not just about what we've achieved materially. It's what we've achieved spiritually and what, what have we achieved. How do we make people feel when we're gone? How do people talk about us? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, you're right. And that the most precious thing you can give someone is your time, isn't it? Time 100%, and attention. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And when you think about things, what what are the what's the thing that makes you saddest? Oh, I don't know what makes probably thinking that my nan's not going to always be here. I know that sounds really like <laughs> such a worst thing to say, but it does. because I, I love my nan to bits. But I think on a less personal, I think what, what makes me sad is, is, seeing, is seeing people unfulfilled, seeing people who are scared to really realise their potential and getting to a point in their life where they look back and they say, I could have done that, I should have done that, I wish I'd done that, you know, the could have, would have, should have. That makes me sad because no matter where you are, no matter how old you are, no matter what's going on, every day's a new day. Every day's a new day. Every day is an opportunity to do something different, to do something more of what you love, to wake up and be a different person every day. Yeah, never too late at all, is it, Shah? Never, never. Oh, brilliant. And can you think of the best piece of advice you've been given over the years? I'm sure you've had loads. Well, I can tell you the piece of business advice I've been given out since I was 21 when people asked me for it is uh, hire a cleaner. My number one piece of business advice is hire a cleaner. Um, you should not be doing jobs that you are not required to do. You should be spending that time on yourself, on your kids, on your family, on your work, reading, sleeping, 
going to the gym, but you do not need to be vacuuming your floors, mate. You don't need to be doing that. And the second piece of advice, that I, the, the piece of advice I've been given, which has really helped me, was to really understand your point. And so this was given to me by one of my investors in one of my previous companies. And he said, you need to understand your point. So for you, Shah, you've got a beautiful house in a beautiful location. And, you know, my house isn't cheap, but my house isn't a 10, 12, 20 million house in Chelsea. He said, for you to put pressure on yourself to go and get that house in Chelsea, the fact is you hate Chelsea. You won't enjoy living in Chelsea. And so you've pushed yourself to do something beyond which is diminishing returns. So what is your point? What is the point at which you've got that optimum happiness? And he told me from his story. He said, for me to get to my first 10 million, he said, it was really easy and I loved it and I had a great life. But then I started to see people around me who were on 40, 50 million. I thought, right, fuck that. I've got to get to hundred million because I'm so competitive. So I spent the next 10 years going from 10 to hundred. And in that time I got divorced. I didn't speak to my kids for two years. I had a heart attack. I had, you know, this, I had that. My outgoings were 500,000 a month on my you know, three, four houses and my helicopter, and my yacht. He said, it was bullshit because my point was the 10 million. What I did after that didn't increase my happiness at all. In fact, it diminished my happiness because I had less and less time. And I thought that was a really interesting lesson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and be really honest, you know, hold a mirror up and be really honest. I think there's so much pressure, isn't it, that we think we should be doing something, but actually, well, no, maybe not. Whatever's because somebody else is. needs to do it doesn't mean you need to do it. Totally, totally. Absolutely have the confidence to to walk your own path. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I love that. So I've got one last question for you, Sean. Well, I've got actually I've got two two questions. All right. So the not the last one, the penultimate question is where can people find you? Because obviously you're all over social media. What's the best place for people to connect with you? Honestly, the best place is probably to go to my website because you can link to everything from there. I have an unusual name, S-H-A-A. I spent a lot of money many years ago on buying my domain. So just go to S-H-A-A.com. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And the final question, what does brave, bold, brilliant mean to you, Shah? It means being yourself. It means just being brave enough to be yourself. It means being bold enough to show up as your full true self and not water yourself down to make other people feel comfortable. And if you do that, you'll be brilliant. Oh, I love that. Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, I, I could chat for hours. We'll have to do a follow-up, Shah. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, darling. No worries. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.